Amen. Thank you. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word this morning? Our reading is the chapter, the eighth chapter of the first book of Samuel, the whole chapter. So settle in. Here we go. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as leaders of Israel. The name of the firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways, and they turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, You are old. And your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected Samuel, but they've rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. And he said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king that you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all the people, uh, all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord, and the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. And then Samuel said to the Israelites, go, every one of you, back to your own town. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may see. Let me pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the word of the year in 2020 is unprecedented. I've heard that word a million times this year. This is actually a chart of the amount of times that the word unprecedented was Googled in the month of March, okay? So you get a sense of uh, how that word has permeated our vocabulary. We are in an unprecedented time, and we're facing unprecedented challenges, and economic volatility is unprecedented, and the health crisis is unprecedented, and the rate of change is unprecedented, and maybe most appropriately, as we prepare to go to the ballot box on Tuesday, it's a time of unprecedented division. 
mostly because of politics. The headlines of uh, our newspapers and our websites confirm it every day. We are more embedded in our beliefs. Civility is in shorter supply. Partisanship is an increasingly toxic force. Violence is spilling out into our streets because of it. The, the political atmosphere and the election season is driving a wedge between family members. I know some of you feel this even to the point where uh, I've heard people say that they're really glad for a global pandemic this year so they don't have to spend the holidays with people they don't want to be with. Just this week, I've heard people say that President Trump is God's man and he will preserve democracy and that anyone who doesn't vote for him doesn't hold Christian values. And then literally like an hour later, I heard somebody say, that Vice President Biden is God's plan to restore a broken nation and any Christian who votes otherwise is dumb or doesn't have a moral conscience. I'm not telling you how to vote. I'm not telling you how I already voted. But I will tell you that both of these statements make me highly uncomfortable, and I think the sentiment behind them is just plain wrong. I think at the very least, if we can agree on something this morning, it's that this is a highly confusing and, or and disorienting time and it's a very strange place for us to be in as people and as a country. But I want to ask the question, is this really what we're experiencing unprecedented? I mean, some of the specifics are certainly without precedent. But are we really experiencing division and confusion and a lack of civility and violence in a manner that has no precedence? And the answer is no. <laughs> and I have four weeks in this series entitled, We Want a King, to show you that much of what we are experiencing here and now in 2020 in America is, it actually has a lot of biblical precedence. In fact, there's an entire period in Israel's history that is called the divided kingdom. So, the good news is if there's biblical precedence for polarization and division and confusion that we sense so much right now, that means that there's also biblical wisdom for us for the time that we find ourselves in. A time that might feel new and scary for us, but it's not new and scary to God. So I want to ask you to commit to joining with us, those on the live stream. Please settle in for these four weeks as we look to God's word for wisdom. Each of these weeks are going to build off the last one. So please, let's settle in and dial in for these four weeks together. And God's word to us this morning comes from 1 Samuel 8. And that's the passage where you heard the theme of this sermon series, We Want a King. So if you started falling asleep in that long reading, let me recap the passage for you. Israel's renowned prophet, his name is Samuel. He's getting old. He's approaching death. And God's people, the Israelites, are looking at his sons and they're growing insecure about God's ability to protect them from the perpetual threat of nations that surround them. So they complained to Samuel that they wanted to be like every other nation. They wanted a king that would lead and, and go out before them and fight battles for them. And Samuel's distraught over this. But God assures him that it's not you, Samuel, that they've rejected. It's me. It's me as their king. First, a, a couple of notes on this, on this text for our collective understanding this morning. First, you need to know that there was already a pretty successful model of leadership going on in Israel when this request comes. 400 years earlier... God had provided a leader. That leader's name was Moses. And Moses led the Israelites, the people of God, out of Egypt, out of slavery. Forty years in the wilderness. 
And then God, at the end of that 40 years of wilderness, provided another leader after Moses, a guy named Joshua. And Joshua becomes the one who, who takes the promised land, who, who, who drives out God's enemies from that land and, and puts in a pretty uh, elaborate form of administration uh, to take over that land. We call this the period of the conquest. And then once the people were settled in that land in a good, healthy way, God provided a new kind of leader, and these leaders are called the judges. You can read about them in the book of Judges. Judges, both men and women, Deborah, Gideon, Sam, Samson, those are some of the names that you know. They were sort of like regional tribal leaders who fought in battles. They adjudicated God's law based on, based on uh, the law that had been given at Sinai, and they led the people of God. The last of those judges was Samuel, who's in our text today. And so as the people ask for a king, I want you to know clearly that they've never had one before in their history. Israel's never had a king. In fact, the judges were not even centralized governmental leaders. They were regional leaders. So the idea of a monarchy was a totally new leadership model for the people of Israel. And there's a reason that Samuel is distraught after their request. And I think part of his distress was that he realizes there's a model that's actually been fairly successful here. And this is a totally new model of leadership. Second thing that you should know from this text is that God's design for his people from the very beginning was that they would not be like the other nations. And he goes out of his way to, to make that point over and over again. The people say they want a king. Why do they want a king? They tell us. So that we can be like every other nation. We can be legitimate in the eyes of other nations. Yes, there were nations surrounding Israel at the time of Samuel. The Elamites and the Ammonites were to the east in, in modern-day Jordan. They were sort of a constant nuisance to God's people. The biggest threat of the time was the Philistines, who were settled into the Mediterranean coast on what we now call the Gaza Strip. The Amalekites, they were kind of on the way down to Egypt. They were a constant sort of threat of invasion for Israel as well. And every single one of these nations had something in common. They had a king. They had a king. All of them were monarchies where the throne was passed through conquest and then through heredity, through their sons. Essentially, every nation in the ancient world followed that same model. A monarchy that was passed through generations, that governed over the people, that gave them a national identity, that led them into battle, that supplied them with national gods, lowercase g gods, uh, that they could worship and customs that they could follow. So every nation around Israel was ruled by somebody clearly, and they existed in tension with and often at war with their neighboring nations. But it's clear from the biblical narrative, really from the very beginning, that God wanted Israel to be an exception to this model. It seemed that God wanted to manifest his original plan for humanity by raising up a nation that had no need for a human king because they had God as their king. And as I said, look at the leadership up until this point. The patriarchs, the conquests, the judges. None of them were solitary national leaders. That was reserved for God alone. Moreover, throughout the Old Testament, we find the Lord commanding his people to place no trust in human rulers or weapons or armies, but rather to find their security where? In him. In him alone. So knowing these two things, 
how do we interpret this request by the Israelites? How do we receive their plea, we want a king? What are the Israelites really saying here? Well, the passage actually makes it pretty clear. Demanding a king is equal to rejecting God. It was never God's design for Israel to have a king. He always wanted them to have him guide them and lead him himself. And for this reason, he says to Samuel, it's not you they've rejected, it's me. It's me. So what does that mean for us here? I mean, if we're excited about a candidate this week, does that mean that we're rejecting God? No, it doesn't mean that. Am I advocating for an autonomous citizenship with no earthly leaders? Of course not. Am I telling you to write in Yahweh on your ballot? No, you can do that, but no. But let's recognize at least that we can become fascinated with and even emotionally and spiritually moved by earthly leaders to the detriment of our trust in God. In other words, when humans find their security in things like kings and leaders and military and platform, they are to some degree rebelling against God's creational design for them to have him alone as their ruler. But I think it's worth asking, why would the Israelites even be tempted towards an earthly leader? I mean, wasn't it God who brought them out of slavery? Didn't they have a good body of evidence for how he works? I mean, wasn't it God who, who brought them into the promised land? Wasn't it God who drove out their enemies from this land? Why would they even be tempted to reject him? Well, I think they rejected him for the same reason that people reject him now. Because we can't see or understand God, and we as humans need something that we can control and we can understand and we can manage. We want to see our leaders, and we want to know their platforms, and we want to look at their track record, and we want to hear their story. We want our leaders to be the kind of people that we like, that make us feel good about ourselves. We want them pro to project confidence and power and, and knowledge and good looks. The problem with God as our king is that we can't see God in that way. We don't understand all the ways that God works. His platform doesn't fit on a, on a web page or on a pamphlet. It, it, it's not something, he's not someone that we can control. He doesn't tell us what he's going to do tomorrow, let alone his first 100 days in office. We are much more drawn to the leaders of this world who will govern us and, and meet our needs and, and provide us with a national identity and fight our battles for us. We want, we want someone who's tangible, who will do what we want them to do, what we voted for them to do based on our values and our convictions and, and provide a tangible benefit and identity for us. If I can illustrate this, this week Albin and I got um, sucked into an episode of Shark Tank. Um, I know some of you watch this show. Um, if you're going to get sucked into a show for an hour, it's a great, it's a great show. Uh, for those of you who don't know the show, it's, it's great. It's like five kajillionaire entrepreneurs who uh, sit on a panel and they listen to pitches from business owners and inventors. And if they are sufficiently wooed, they can offer in return funding and uh, a stake in the company. The business owners, they're almost always uh, have this great backstory that's intriguing and it sort of pulls on the heartstrings. They come prepared with a, with a presentation that's supposed to blow the sharks away, right? And the sharks listen to this presentation and then they always respond in the same way. You know, and if you've watched this, you know where I'm going. Okay, let's get down to brass tacks. Tell me the numbers. What's your reach? What's your market? What does it cost to produce your product? 
What's your overhead? What, what's your takeaway? What's, what's, what are your current sales? They want the pitch, which needs to be attractive and engaging, and then they want tangible evidence before they're going to place their trust in these potential business owners, these potential partners. I don't think it would ever work for someone who isn't visible, who veils themselves, who hides themselves, to give a pitch, someone who didn't have a concrete product, who couldn't offer you hard data, who simply somehow stood up there and said, just trust me, just trust me. I think they would laugh them off the set, right? But what if, what if the sharks knew that this person could not fail? What if they knew that this person was all-knowing, all-powerful, and, and, and always faithful and trustworthy in every way? Would they still need something more tangible, manageable, easily controlled? I would guess they would. I think they would still pass. They would still choose that which they could see and measure and project. They are much more likely to place their trust and hope in something that they can control in their minds and then still maintain their position of power. The takeaway here is, is pretty simple. Be careful of placing hope in earthly leaders. Just because you can see them, just because their benefits are tangible, does not mean that they are worthy of your hope. I believe just like Israel, it's our misplaced hope in earthly leaders that's been a driving force of the division that we're so constantly aware of. And we're going to talk about hope in the weeks to come around. Our earthly leaders can so easily become identity markers for us, so much so that they demand from us our hope and our loyalty. If you're a follower of Jesus or you're considering being a follower of Jesus, I just encourage you to be very wary of this. Where's your hope? If we hope in earthly leaders rather than Jesus, we will most certainly be more formed by those earthly leaders than we are by Jesus himself as people. So in the weeks to come, we're going to discuss this much more. We're going to unpack this. We're going to talk about what it means to shift our hope back to Jesus. But I want us to just sit in a couple questions. How much hope have I placed in earthly leaders and what they can deliver for me? And then can I recognize that this, at least in part, is a rejection of God and is outside of his desire for me? Can I recognize that this is, at least in part, a rejection of God and outside his desire for me? That's the question we all have to ask. But it's not where I want us to end today. I want to end in, in what I find to be a fascinating discussion concerning our text today that's really helpful for us as we begin to shift our hope towards Jesus. There are a number of scholars uh, who would contend that the Israelites actually weren't rejecting Yahweh. In fact, they were just fulfilling what God had already promised for them. They get this from a passage in Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17 happens 350 years before the life of Samuel, while the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. And if you look at this text, God actually tells the Israelites that they may have a king, that they can have a king. I want to read it for you, so listen closely. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. This is God speaking, Yahweh, God. When you've come into the land that the Lord your God has given you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, I, Israel, will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, 
you may indeed set over you a king from whom the Lord your God will choose. One of your own community you may set as a king over you. You're not permitted to put a foreigner over you who is not of your own community. Even so, he must not acquire many horses for himself or return the people to Egypt in order to acquire more horses since the Lord has said to you, you must never return that way again. He must not acquire many wives for himself or else his heart will turn away. Also, silver and gold he must not acquire in great quantity for himself. When he has taken the throne of his kingdom, he shall have a copy of this law written for him in the presence of the Levitical priest and it will remain with him and he shall read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, diligently observing the words of this law and these statutes, neither exalting himself above other members of the community, nor turning aside from this commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he and his descendants may reign long over his kingdom in Israel. So here God says, there's going to come a time when you're going to ask for a king, he says, you can have it. Here are the stipulations. When I read this, what amazes me is that God knew. God is all-knowing. God knew. Three and a half centuries before they even asked for it, God knew that the people were going to ask for a king. God knew because he is all-knowing. And despite the biblical evidence that God seems to be, at least in Deuteronomy 17, okay with them having a king, right? I want to encourage you to not lose focus on the character of God here, Yahweh as the intended king. Notice that God does not say in this text, I will appoint a king as a leader over you, but rather that you will ask for a king and I will lovingly grant that request. You see, Yahweh is a God who cares so much about his people that he will make concessions to stay in relationship with his people. Even knowing that Israel would reject him for an earthly king, he does not give up on them. He does whatever needs to be done to maintain relationship with his people. Interestingly enough, by the time that the Israelites actually do demand a king 350 years later, in 1 Samuel 8, it seems that their spiritual condition as a people was such that God didn't have any hope that they were going to find a king like he talked about in Deuteronomy 17, right? Instead, he just instead of reminding people of what he said in Deuteronomy 17 when they ask for a king, he just warns them what, that whatever king they choose is going to bring them severe hardship, precisely because that king's going to engage in the activities that God said they shouldn't. So if God is making concessions in Deuteronomy 17, when he first acknowledged that Israel someday would demand a king, he's yielding even further in 1 Samuel 8 now that they're actually asking for one. Yet despite God's warning, these rebellious people, they persisted in their demand and Yahweh reluctantly acquiesced. God loved his people so much that he even entered into the selection of a king named Saul, who we're going to talk about, who he knew, God knew, was going to fulfill the worst of these predictions. But he never gives up on his people. Even in the midst of misplaced hope, their embarrassing lack of trust, their infatuation with things that they can see and control, there is, it seems, no limit to how far God, Yahweh, will yield to remain in relationship with his people and continue to further his good purposes through them. As my brilliant former teacher, Greg Boyd, put it, 
when God is depicted along the lines of a pro-king nationalistic deity, we should conclude that God is wearing a mask. These depictions and the role that God assumes by appropriating them tell us much more about the people that God had to work with than they do about God himself. Listen, we may be understandably drawn to earthly leaders that we can hear and we can see and we can understand, but my friends, they are not worthy of our ultimate hope and our ultimate trust. That should be reserved for God as our king. Whatever country we wake up to on Wednesday morning, it's still not the nation that we are called to. We are called to be a unique people who respect our earthly leaders, but do not ultimately hope in them because our allegiance is already pledged to God. The Israelites, they wanted an earthly king to legitimize them in the eyes of the nations around them. But think about it this way. When's the last time you met somebody who was an Amalekite or a Philistine or an Edomite or an Ammonite? You've never met one because they don't exist anymore. Those kings and those nations have been lost to memory, lost to history. So too, and I hope this is comforting, America is not eternal. It will pass away in time. But we have available to us a king and a kingdom that will never pass away, never be lost to history, a king who will never cede his throne, who will never, ever stop loving his people, even when we misplace our hope and divide along tribal lines and dehumanize others and trust in things that will not last. Even when we reject him, he does not stop pursuing relationship with us. And the character of God is most exemplified in the person of Jesus Christ who yielded to ridiculous lengths for his people, who yielded even to death on a cross for you and for me. He is the king that is worthy of our hope. No, he cannot be tamed or controlled or managed but he can also not be anything but good and victorious and worthy of the trust that we place in him. So it is appropriate for us in this week, this crazy week, this heavy week, to bring the heaviness of our lives, of our country, of our world, to the communion table. This is an invitation for us today as we begin this series. We have the opportunity to come and say, we want a king. When you come to this table today, I want your hearts to be saying, I want a king. I want a king. But, but not a king that's going to legitimize me in the eyes of other people. Not a king that's, that's going to be like all the other nations. No, we, we want a king who empties himself for the sake of others. We want a king that we could never control or manage. We want a king who has shown us over and over and over again that he loves us so much and he will go to ridiculous, even embarrassing lengths to maintain relationship with us, even when we reject him. So I invite you to come to this table today, and as you do so, would you, at at least in your heart, would you relinquish 
your hope in earthly leaders, in earthly platforms, in earthly things as your ultimate hope? And instead, would you yield? Would you humble yourself before the God of the universe who humbled himself even to death out of love for you? He is the only one that could possibly be worthy of your trust and your hope and your allegiance. It's good for us as we come to the table to begin with a prayer of confession. I'll have this confession for you up on the screen. Would you join with me? Righteous God, you have crowned Jesus Christ as Lord of all. We confess that we have not bowed before him and are slow to acknowledge his rule. We give allegiance to the powers of this world and fail to be governed by justice and love. In your mercy, forgive us. Raise us to acclaim him as ruler of all that we may be loyal ambassadors, obeying the commands of our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Think of it this way, my friends. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, as he began the process of yielding himself, even to death, he was with his disciples in that upper room, and he washed their feet. The King of the universe got down on his knees and washed their feet. And they sat at the table with him, and he served them a meal as a reminder of what it means to say, we want King Jesus. The Apostle Paul says that I give to you what was also passed on to me, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. King Jesus, we shift our allegiance back to you. Forgive us for our misplaced hopes. Forgive us for the ways we miss your gracious presence in our lives and go after fleeting things. Lord, would you help us to to navigate the division and the confusion that we face in a faithful way? as responsible citizens of the the nation that we are in, but mindful that we are called to something so much more, the very kingdom of God. Would you teach us what it means to humble ourselves for the sake of others, just as you model for us at our feet. And as we come to this meal, just as you did for those disciples in the upper room, Would you fill us beyond what what merely is happening in our bodies through this meal? Would you fill our spirits with your goodness and with your grace and with your love? And may it be fuel that we might use for mission in the kingdom of God for you. We come forward, Lord, 
so we say you are the only king that we need. Would you take your throne in our lives, in our church, in our nation? You are our king. Amen. Amen. By way of instruction, we'll be serving you from up front. Um, you can come and hold out your hands. We will put a piece of bread in for you and then individual cups and there's a place for you to drop off those cups when you're done. If you want us to come and serve you where you are, you can just flag us down at the end. We would be happy to come and serve you. Anyone who would place their trust in Jesus Christ, who would seek to renew their allegiance to him this day, are welcome to draw near in faith.